Welcome to Risk Roundup. Machine learning, an evolving method of data analysis that automates analytical model building, is well on its way to making complex decisions without much human intervention. This developing ability to apply complex mathematical calculations to growing data is becoming very, very important. The combination of advances in big data, in powerful computational processing techniques, and in cloud computing and data storage means that it is now possible to automate model building to quickly analyze data and deliver faster and more accurate results in an affordable manner. As a result, any entity that works with large amounts of data will likely benefit from the evolving machine learning capability. Even more, those that work in forecasting, which is basically an attempt to quantify the future to better prepare for expected future events, will also benefit as this also depends on large amounts of complex data. To discuss machine learning for market forecasting further, I am delighted to welcome Tony Nash to Risk Roundup. Tony is the CEO and founder of Complete Intelligence, a data technology firm using the world's largest proprietary artificial intelligence and machine learning platform to forecast commodities, currencies, equity markets, economics, and international trade. Tony is also an international advisory board member for Texas A&M University and a non-executive director with Credit Microfinance Bank in Cambodia. Welcome, Tony. We are so very honored to have you on Risk Roundup. Thank you very much. I'm really glad to be here. Wonderful, Tony. So as we see, irrespective of small or large, public or private, each and every entity must develop forecasts to estimate its future performance. And they need to set their targets. They need to have the resource plans, investor expectations or compensation plans, and even plan for their survival and sustainability of mm. initiatives and or entities. So while there are many different type of forecasts that can be done at different time intervals and entities spend such large amount of human and other resources in developing these forecasts. Forecasting at this point is a tedious, costly, ineffective, outdated process across most nations. How do you see machine learning changing that and transforming forecasting? Sure. I think really what uh, automated, let's say, uh, the number of processors and the amount of data, uh, what that really does is it uh, increases the scale of forecasting. So, you know, we, we've got about 15 and a half billion data items in our core model, and we're doing, we're, we have millions of algorithms that self-adjust every month. And so what that does is it allows us to use publicly available data. We're not using proprietary data. We're using publicly available data to effectively model out the global supply-demand balance. Uh, we do this across 1,500 industry sectors. We do this for more than 150 countries. We do this for uh, about 200 currency pairs, uh, 100-plus commodities, and so on and so forth. We even do equity markets. So what we're doing allows companies to take proprietary data and lay it over our platform, okay? That on its own is a very cost-effective way for small companies and major multinationals to model out different scenarios for their business, to understand what's going on in the world and to understand why it's happening. Um, I think 
part of the reason, well, a big part of the reason that um, that forecasting is so uh, difficult today, and quite frankly, so wrong, is because you know we're we're dealing with a way of thinking about forecasting that comes out of let's say traditional economics, um, where you you have uh, data opacity. You don't really know what's going on in the world. You have limited data sets. And what happens with almost every economist I've ever worked with and a lot of market forecasters, they have a predetermined idea of what the forecast outcome should be. And almost every forecaster will game their forecast to match what they expect the outcome to be. So they're not truly modeling. All they're doing is reverse engineering a, an outcome that is predetermined. Um, and this is really, uh, it's what forecasting has become. I think at some point forecasting and, and econometrics were truly um, kind of input driven where the outcome was was left to, let's say the model, even if it was a very simple model, but whether it's corporate forecasting, government statistics bureaus, uh, even research firms, the forecasts that they do are predetermined and they revert to consensus. This is the big, big problem that we see in many, many, uh, let's say, corporates today. Yes, you are absolutely um, right. That is a cause of great concern because if they want to just hear what they want to hear, irrespective of what the market is saying or what the reality is, right. then it's, you know, it's not going to help them for what they are trying to have the forecasting because anyway, forecasting is a complex task and decision makers face so many challenges to develop this forecast and they lose a lot of time and money and resources in this process. Now, if the decision makers who, if the managers prepare this forecast, if the decision makers who wants this just the way they want it, then there's no point of doing that whole exercise because it's not going to help them at all. So this is a very complex challenge. And what you told about your data, how your algorithm works and how the companies can use their proprietary data and integrate that with it, that seems to be very interesting because the public data is out there and you know we can uh, gather a lot of intelligence from that. But if their proprietary data is also integrated, then it, you know, it probably increases that accuracy of the forecast and it benefits them tremendously. So it seems that these decision makers, uh, they are facing challenges in getting accurate long-term and there are these two kinds of data uh, forecasting, right? Short-term uh, forecasting and long-term forecasting. So what are the, you said some of the reasons that, you know, the decision makers they just want to hear what they want to hear so mm. forecasting models are made or built to you know satisfy them but mm. other than that what are the most common reasons for lack of accuracy in mm. forecasting and do you think machine learning would overcome these challenges i do i think machine learning is not a just the phrase machine learning doesn't mean that things are automatically fixed i mean you have to really, you know, when we started the firm, one of the key uh, items we use to guide our firm is that we do not want any intervention. Forecast not really, okay. We did that. We started as a consulting firm. And in uh, part of the reason we, we don't do that, first, I've seen it for over a decade and, and, and all that does is result in error that you cannot trace. 
if you manually change a forecast outcome or game a forecast outcome, when your forecast is wrong, you cannot isolate the error to fix it. You cannot understand what the algorithm is because it's in somebody's head. Uh, but one of our early experiences in, in June of 2015, we were forecasting a bill of material for a major global manufacturer. And then part of that bill of material was crude oil, was West Texas crude oil. And at the time, WTI was trading at $60, okay? Um, this was June of 2015. It was right around $60, $62, something like that. Uh, the consensus view was that WTI would trade at $80 by the end of the year. Um, when we forecast the bill of material, which included some metals and crude oil and some currencies, um, the, the, the one that got the most attention was our WTI forecast, which had WTI at $48 by the end of the year, somewhere between 46 and 48. Now there were 120 people from the global supply chain team in this meeting for this client. And they came to us after the meeting and they said, look, we really like your approach. Uh, we really admire what you're doing, but you're so far off of consensus that we can't work with you. So the consensus was $80, we were at $46, okay? Now, December of 2015 came around and crude oil was trading at $42, okay? So had we gamed our forecast to consensus, it would have been $80 and we would have been 100% off uh, of, of actuals, okay? But instead we were, you know, single digit percents and we were actually closer than anybody in the market. Um, and so that was an early lesson for us that it just doesn't pay to manually intervene. And even though we lost clients in the short term, that client came back to us the month after uh, and came back to us for you know, a large contract. So I think we need to be really careful about what consensus means. And that's the biggest enemy of accurate forecasting is gaming to consensus, okay? Another um, error is using small data models. When we talk to most corporates, when we ask them what they use to forecast, say their, their sales revenues, or let's say some commodity raw material, most of their models use maybe five inputs, okay? GDP, industrial production, something like that, okay? And that's too small, okay? When we test um, a, um, let's say a historical data series, we're testing that against about a million and a half functions, okay? Where the large forecasters um, maybe test against five or 10 or 20, um, we're testing against a million and a half. Corporates typically use five or 10 maybe. Again, we start a million and a half. We, uh, we narrow it down to a few hundred to build our algorithm, okay? The other part is people don't update their algorithms enough. We update our algorithms every month. We're, we're, we're doing this every month, okay? Most people design a forecast algorithm and maybe update it every two years or every five years, including the professional forecasters. Most of these name brand forecasters update their algorithms every two years at the most, okay? So we're, you know, the global economy is dynamic. Uh, there are trade-offs, things change, everything from prices to trade flows to currencies. And this is why we reweight and retest our algorithms every month, okay? Now, the third thing that people really need to be careful of when they're doing forecasts is kind of the illusion of certainty and the illusion of causality, 
when we work with clients, oftentimes they want to know what drives that price, what drives, you know, whatever. Okay. And this is the, I guess on some level, kind of the danger of expertise, uh, because there are a lot of assumptions that X drives Y if you're an expert. And when we go in and we test and we're using a, you know, a million and a half plus variables that we're testing out, our, we're taking this view that we actually don't know what drives the price of zinc or crude or the dollar or the yen or you know, the S&P 500. We're, we're going and testing these things and then we're building that algorithm based on what works out statistically, not based on a bias that we walk into that uh, calculation with. Okay, um, and and that works for us. Our error rates are typically low single digits. Okay, uh, and we would put them beside really anybody in the market. Uh, so um, those biases, you know, the the um, the biases often result in double digit error rates, which are which are really problematic. Yes, no, you're absolutely right, and that's what our goal should be: not to let any bias get into the algorithms. And like you said, you know that we cannot just have one-time algorithm, you know, and then you just keep using it forever. It needs to be updated like what you are doing because yeah. it's everything and everyone gets digitized. The ability to get this real-time intelligence for decision-making is becoming fundamental and machine learning ability needs to also use this real-time data and we also need to keep updating the algorithm so that they can benefit from the real-time data and give us the nature of forecasting that we are looking for. So from your assessment, how will decision-making evolve from traditional model of market forecasting to machine learning-based model for market for forecasting based on this real-time intelligence that you are seeing? Right. I think, you know, what you're going to see uh, is obviously, and this is a no-brainer, but decisions based on data rather than gut feeling, right? And, you know, you have a lot of let's say a lot of executives who grew up in an era where they just didn't have a lot of information to make decisions on, or uh, they grew up with limited data to make decisions on, or the data they were measuring wasn't actually what worked. So we're, we worked with a, a client in China and they are an industrial manufacturer uh, around real estate. And they uh, wanted us to build city level revenue models for, um, uh, for their business. And so we did this for the top 15 cities in China. The, the CEO for their CEO for China had an idea of what drove his business and it was commercial real estate uh, data. Okay. So when we went in and we tested our million plus um, uh, functions, we added in commercial real estate data. We added in a bunch of different things into this. Okay. A bunch of things that they wanted us to also test, which we're happy to do. We don't think we have the only way of doing this. We're happy to test other data. Okay. What we found was commercial real estate, which was one of the only items that he could use that was somewhat related. And he's been in the business for 30 years. This has been his go-to data point we found that there was a correlation of 0.02 of commercial real estate to his business revenue growth, okay? So it was almost non-existent. Now, when we revealed that to him, he literally would not talk to us for a month, okay? <laughs> he was so tied to that guiding data item that he refused to answer our emails, pick up the phone and talk to us for a month. And then we sat down 
when he finally allowed us to talk to him, we sat down and we explained it to him and we showed him uh, what actually drove his sales at the city by city level, different for every city, okay? That company ended up reconfiguring their sales force in China based upon the results that we gave them because they had this new data-driven approach to look at the market and to understand what was going on in the market. And so this CEO now, this China CEO for this company, understands how important data is. He had a really dramatic break from his own past uh, and, and a really dramatic break into really using data to understand what's going on in a market. So I actually think you have almost, um, uh, almost a demographic break where you have people of a certain age who really didn't grow up with data and they're not comfortable with data. And then you have people below a certain age uh, uh, who did grow up with data. Unfortunately, I'm not in that age group, but people who did grow up with data and they're very comfortable with data and they're very comfortable making data-driven data decisions. And I think we're in an intermediate period where the more senior executives who really aren't comfortable with data are having to move forward in a, in a really tentative way because they're used to making gut level decisions. Uh, and that's really, really problematic. Now, uh, if you're on a board or you're a part of an executive team, that is risk that, there, you know, there's a huge amount of risk in relying on your gut feeling or, or wholly on your historical experience because markets are changing really, really quickly. And I think boards really need to look carefully at how they're making decisions, how the company is making decisions, how they're justifying investments, how they're putting their sales figures together. Typically you have somebody in finance doing top down, you have somebody in sales doing bottom up, and then you agree on some sort of um, uh, you know, compromise. But are you really using uh, you know, very, very large data models to understand what's driving sales, what those numbers will be, you know, what's driving your costs. We do supply chain forecasting all the time for major manufacturers. And what happens on the raw materials side often is somebody has a long-term relationship with a vendor and that may or may not be in those shareholders' best interests. So we help those, those purchasing teams understand the direction of pricing the trends in pricing and the inflection points in pricing. We're not aware of anybody else out there who's doing that in as detailed a way that we're doing. So, so it is a risk not to rely on data because uh, profit margins, revenue opportunities, they're so exposed, okay? Now, one of the other things I wanna, I wanna talk to you about since, since this is a risk-focused uh, discussion, one of the questions we get oftentimes from people is, um, how do you account for political risk in your model? So if we look at trade right now, okay, um, there, there's a lot of concern about political risk and, um, and you know, there, there, there are a lot of questions of how we account for that in our models, okay? So we have two answers for that. First is there is not a single polit major political risk forecaster out there who, uh, who successfully predicted Brexit and successfully predicted Donald Trump. You can go to any of the major political risk forecasting shops. None of them predicted both of those, the two largest um, uh, events in Western countries for the last five years, and they all failed, okay? So political risk factor uh, firms actually don't backtest their models. They don't really disclose their error, okay? So 
we and, and those guys do it all day long every day. We can't be better than those guys in terms of political risk. Okay. What we do see is that markets anticipate risk typically better than those political risk forecasters. So if we look at things like currencies, which are very, very sensitive, okay, uh, currencies move very quickly when risk is anticipated. Certain commodity prices move and certain equity markets move. Uh, and so our view is that markets anticipate risk better than some analysts sitting in New York or London. Um, you know, we really have to look at markets to understand what's going on in the political risk sphere. Now, do we understand exactly what risk is coming down? We, we don't. Um, but we have to be able to quantify and backtest how these things are changing. And if you can't quantify and backtest a risk calculation, then it's very problematic. And, and I, I advise companies not to use these for anything but maybe a little bit of qualitative color or something like that. You're absolutely right. That's an excellent you know, analysis and points that you made there because everything is changing so rapidly. The technology transformation is you know, changing the way we do things and how the risks that are emerging, even the political risks that you talked about, nobody could anticipate because people did not take into consideration how are people you know, how is the change management happening, you know, across nations? How are people responding to the rapid, you know, technology transformation? They're losing jobs. They are losing, you know, they are feeling insecure. So that there is a changing nature of security risk mm. was not taken into consideration. And that is, you know, where unless we put those variables into our algorithms or we put those variables into our analysis, we are not going to be able to accurately forecast what's going to happen. And that's where risk and, you know, security, you know, everything uh, goes hand in hand. And so these changes, unless we evaluate those changes, what its impact going to be, understand the changing nature of security risk, we will not be able to accurately forecast anything because we won't be able to enter those variables into our forecasting you know, algorithms. So when we evaluate the current state of market forecasting, mm. And as we take a step forward in our digitization journey, how do you see machine learning evolving itself from its current state to manage the complex processes of markets for market forecasting and complex uh, uh, nature of changes that are happening with the you know mm -hmm. way the technology is changing, the way the it's uh, the way we do things is changing, and the way you know. Uh, the risk, security risk are emerging across nations and how people are responding to that, how the political leaders are responding to that. How do you see all this changing the very nature of how we, uh, how the machine learning will need to evolve? Well, I think machine learning will, will evolve and that's kind of a, a technical continuum that will happen. But I I think the, the first thing that really needs to happen is the expectations of what the technology can do. Um, you know, the, the way expectations are set and the way forecasts are done, there's very little accountability to the status quo way that these things are done. And I think the pressure is largely gonna come from boards and executive teams who look through the organization and say, hey, your forecast is way off. Um, that's just unacceptable. You have to find a better way to do that because we have abundant data in markets now. 
Um, and companies have abundant data. They have huge amounts of data that they're doing nothing with. And some of it's good data, some of it's not, but there, there's a huge amount of data out there. And when we talk with companies and they send us their proprietary data, you know, they're worried about, let's say, 10,000 lines of data coming across to us. Actually, we don't care if it's millions of lines of data that come across. You know, it's all good data as long as, you know, we can structure it, as long as we can use it. Um, uh, we, we don't care if it's 10,000 lines, 10 million lines. Um, it, it all works within the model. And so I think machine learning from a very nerdy technical perspective is going to evolve along this continuum from, say, having uh, uh, say forecast to understand what's happening in, let's say, a shop 10 seconds from now, um, all the way through to a week, to a month, to six months, to a year, to five years from now. So, so those are all right now very different techniques, and they're, they're going to have to fuse together into a continuous technique the way, the way that stuff works, okay? Also, the ability to take in data and understand what data works and what data doesn't, and then and then chuck data out. I think again, that's a very kind of gross way of saying it, but I think the usability of it and the, the continuity of it, I think, is going to change dramatically over the next few years. But I think the the bigger part is accountability from a corporate and even a government perspective on the output of the data. So right now there is a a focus. Uh, again, I, I talked about the, the perception of causality, right? People want to predetermine what drives a certain outcome, okay? I think over time, there's going to be less focus on what actually drives that outcome. And, and I think the focus will be on, okay, is your prediction correct? So it doesn't really matter what drives that outcome because it, there's going to be so much data underlying these calculations um, you know, when someone wants to understand from our perspective what drives uh, an outcome, you know, we're using several hundred items to build an individual algorithm every month. So if they want to know the top five items that drive an outcome, those top five items may be low single digit percentages of the overall impact. Okay. So traditionally, people would say uh, GDP or investor production or the dollar or something drives outcome X. Um, and that may or may not hold, um, but they could look to that one indicator to, or they thought they could look to that one indicator to predict the outcome of something. Okay. But what's happening is there are thousands, literally thousands of inputs to any price. There are thousands of inputs to any market. There are thousands of inputs and in some cases, millions of inputs to any, let's say, revenue calculation, if you're really truly looking at, at, at it holistically. And so you can't really say that any one item drives company X's revenue, or you can't say that any one or two or three items drive commodity price A or currency B. So, so it's those perceptions. It's accountability to the outcome, and it's a... Um, uh, focus on the outcomes rather than the inputs. Those two things, I believe, will change within organizations as they get more comfortable with really with true data-driven outcomes. You're absolutely right. That's an excellent point you made because we are moving towards outcome economy where everyone is focused on outcomes. And that is, you know, going to be the key. And uh, the way technology is changing everything, the Everything we do, how we you know shop, how we you know bank, how we forecast, 
everything is changing because of the rapid technology transformation. So how, the, just the way, you know, we could not foresee the political change that was coming in the United States, a lot of people are not uh, able to adapt. And that is the the one of the reasons behind that was that they were not able to accept the rapid nature of changes that were coming their way and they got impacted by that. So how do you, this forecasting using machine learning is also one of those changes. Like you said before, the decision makers are not comfortable still, you know, to use these machine learning models based on the re either real-time data or, uh, you know, large amounts of different variables. They, they just uh, like to have that consensus and they are not used to this way of forecasting and taking decisions. So how are machine, machine learning models from your perspective for market forecasting accepted at this point across nations? Uh, I think, so every time we work with a client, uh, the approach we take, if it's, a, let's say a bespoke engagement where somebody wants us to say forecast their supply chain costs or their revenues or something like that, what we'll do is we first take an in-sample uh, proof of concept. Uh, so we'll, for example, we'll take their revenues to the end of 2016 and we'll forecast them for 2017 and compare them against actual. So, so they can see the error rates based on our approach. Um, most people are not convinced of our approach uh, until they see it in action. Uh, and we can't just say, trust us, we're going to forecast 2019 for you and it's going to be right. If we do that, there are so many questions. And if we're off in the first month, then they throw the whole thing away, right? So we have to look at an in-sample approach so they can understand what our error looks like over time because we don't claim to be perfect to anybody. Um, but we do expect that our error rate will be much lower than status quo ways of doing it and really just about anybody else. So. Um, so we're not afraid to do that. We're not afraid to show how we would have forecast things historically. Um, and, and that's really how people become believers. So, so we have a client in Germany, major electronics manufacturer. They had us forecasting their revenues. Uh, this is a multi-billion dollar firm. Um, we just had a, a session with them to um, uh, show them some forecasts we did for the 2018, 2019 revenues. And uh, the last time we had received data for, from them was in the last quarter of 2017. So when we sat down with them in May, they said, okay, let's, let's compare your Q1 2018 forecast to our Q1 2018 actuals. And, you know, I had a moment of deep fear <laughs> that it, it really wasn't gonna go well just because, it, you know, it's your output, right? Um, but actually we found that in most cases, in, in most countries and at most product levels that we had forecast for them, these are business line levels, we were within a million euros of their actuals, okay? For a multi-billion dollar company, this is huge. And they were shocked that we were as accurate as we were, okay? And so the, that company now is very much a believer in what we're doing. And that company is pursuing uh, us to do much, much more for them. And we find that that happens again and again. People have one or two experiences with us and then they wanna scale it up. And, and what our platform allows is because we're not manicuring every single line item of the forecast, it allows for a lot of scale actually.
Uh, and so they can do, you know, instead of doing, let's say five countries and say 10 business lines, we can scale that out to three, four, five times that in a very quick period so they can understand and have a better view on their data. Because again, for things like revenue forecasts, almost every company that I know of, they have finance doing one forecast, they have sales doing another forecast and they meet in the middle, it's a negotiated uh, outcome. Um, and most of these companies need some third party that they can use to check. So whether it's, uh, let's say a CRM system that's doing it for them or an ERP system or something like that, or if it's somebody like us using an ML approach, uh, then you know that's fine. I mean, there are plenty of companies to go around. We can all uh, do well with this, but, um, but we're finding more and more people appreciate the precision with which we do this and the, the error rates. Again, we're not perfect, but one of the things that happened uh, in that meeting with that German electronics firm we got on about the fourth country that, uh, you know, within this deliverable. And uh, for most of these, we had been low single digit percentages error rate. And in one country, we were uh, uh, low double digit percentage error rate for one business line. And again, low double digit per percentage error rate for another business line. So the finance director, instead of looking at us uh, to question us, he looked at his team and asked if they had allocated revenue appropriately. Okay. So when people really do see the ability of, of our approach, um, they, they're not afraid to question their own staff and ask their own staff if they've, you know, if they've done their, you know, their homework appropriately. So it's really a confidence building exercise and it's, it's something we're, we're just not afraid to do. Yes, absolutely. No, that's an excellent point. And you, you given a really good example that how even within a corporation, each of these, you know, different department, they are working in silos. They are all probably using different data sets. They're probably all going to use, they're, they're still using, you know, different way they come to that forecasting. Uh, and uh, this working in silo is a challenge. And, you know, you gave a really good example how you compare your effectiveness of your model with, you know, the quarter one uh, data that you uh, got from the client in Germany. But is is that the only way you can determine the effectiveness of your model or, you know, basically broadly machine learning? Or is there any other way also that you constantly try to see the effectiveness? Sure, there, there, there are many, many ways we can do that through different ways of backtesting or whatever. But but we, we find typically with clients that it's just, it's experience-based. They really have to see the results. They have to understand what we're doing and they have to see how it compares to their status quo way of doing things. Because um, we find if, if we talk to say low or mid-level staff, they're afraid of what we do because they're afraid that we're gonna do better than them. And you know, we don't see our purpose as displacing anybody. All we wanna do is give them better tools to make decisions. The senior level staff within companies typically look at what we're doing and, and they really like it because it, again, it gives more precision to what we're doing, but it also allows us to identify where the error is. In so many companies, they, you know, they're used to seeing really bad forecasts and they just can't figure out why they're so bad. So they junk them, you know, they, they get it and they look at it, but it's, 
you know, the executives typically have to calibrate it mentally and say, mm, okay, maybe that's, uh, you know, double, you know, 15% too high or too low, or these guys always do this and they're, they're always off by X amount or something like that. The, the team doing the forecasting really can't figure out the error because they're not using enough data to drive their forecast. The executives don't have enough time to help them figure out what the issue is. So, so we help them with, again, it's another point of view that they can use and over time with the experience that we give them, uh, typically get comfortable with what we're doing. Yes, very true, very true. Now, you, we talked about this accuracy of the models and why machine learning models uh, are doing so much better at being giving us accurate forecasting, but there is also another uh, variable that is uh, probably, you know, making the decision makers go forward with this machine learning uh, based forecasting. And that is probably the speed because as these AI based analytical systems can automatically recognize the changes in the markets and they adapt and adjust in ways that our rigid, you know, statistic based quantitative models, they just cannot. So there is a great effort in uh, having this machine learning drive that uh, those changes because if you as you know more probably better than me is that from financial fund management to high frequency trading there is a great effort uh, going on to quickly understand evaluate and forecast things before they develop and because there is that's where their money is right so it's there is a great effort in moving towards speed of action and speed of decision making so do you see that speed is probably at the center of the market forecasting strategy? Absolutely. So, so um, we have a major international oil company uh, that's a client, and uh, they've come to us to do some some work for them. And if their internal team had done this work, it would take them between three and six months to do. Uh, for us, it takes us really a dedicated time. It's just a matter of days uh, to do. Um, and that's just a, ma a matter of getting the team's time to actually run the process. So it's not as if, um, you know, we're reprogramming everything. We're, we're effectively going in and layering this over our internal system. Um, and what we're getting out is a valid forecast, a precise forecast, understanding, you know, comparing error rates and then giving a, a go forward view on things. Um, if this had been done internally, again, it would take three, four, five months for them to do, whereas we can do it in a very, very short period of time. And over time, that's getting quicker. So people's ability to really understand how markets move, get delivery on that, and then understand what the drivers are, it, it can happen very, very quickly. And again, this isn't just kind of an Excel model with four or five drivers. This is a very intensive uh, process. Um, and so we're doing it faster, but we're also doing it better. We're doing it in a more detailed manner. We're doing it in a more accurate manner, and we're doing it with more accountability. So if we're way off, trust me, these companies will hold us accountable. Um, whereas internally, it's very difficult to hold uh, those internal staff accountable um, because, you know, for, for whatever dynamics there are, a different department or, or whatever it is, uh, you know, being an external vendor, uh, they hold us accountable in a very direct way. Yes, 
Yes, so it seems, I mean, you uh, you made an excellent example of that. And, you know, there is, uh, as we talk that, you know, one is the comfort level, one is the acceptance and trust about these, you know, machine learning models that uh, is still, you know, a work in progress. And, you know, not all decision makers are still comfortable using uh, these machine learning models to help them forecast and take the uh, effective decisions. But other than those challenges, what? Uh, a technical regulatory or other challenges and obstacles you see in the development of machine learning for financial industry forecasting especially? Well, from a regulatory perspective, one of the things that we've done from the very start is um, all of the data that we use is publicly available data. Okay, We don't want to use any proprietary data because um, it could get our clients in trouble. If that data is derived in an, from an unethical means or something like that, um, we don't want to have to explain that to our clients. So everything we're using is publicly available. It's from an exchange, it's from a government agency, it's from an industry association, something like that, um, so that there is accountability, there is documentation around it, there's a clear methodology um, so that if that client has to report on the data they're using, it's very, very easy for us uh, to get that background uh, for them. Um, again, the regulatory requirements around proprietary data, um, depending on how you get that data, can be, you know, can be pretty difficult. So we just didn't want to go down that road at all, and we wanted to make sure that everything we use is publicly available. Yeah, so that that is a uh, you know good point, and uh, like you said, you are using mostly publicly available data. But as the technology experts apply machine learning beyond financial forecasting, and you know all these uh, stock market prediction, and you know all other market forecasting, we also see these uh, moving uh, data moving to blockchain, and uh, for you know especially for security and privacy of the data. So. As more and more data moves towards blockchain, what impact do you see of these converging technologies on the financial forecasting sector when we try to use the data on the blockchain and, you know, we have this machine learning uh, model built on that? Sure. I mean, it, look, blockchain-based data, if it really is um, verifiable and if it's traced, then that circumvents a lot of those regulatory requirements. Um, if it's if it's trackable and if it's understandable where that data came from and every step of it is validated along the blockchain, then then yeah, absolutely, I think that that is certainly one way uh, around it. Um, I don't necessarily think it answers all questions. I think um, you know that has to be carefully documented and it has to be vetted. Uh, but I do think it's certainly one way uh, of um, uh, I guess meeting requirements and potentially providing much faster data sets. I mean, when you look at things like government-derived data sets, they're so slow, and to be honest, they're so questionable at times. Um, you really don't know, you know who's gathering the data. You don't know what survey you know, techniques they're using. You don't know what their level of education is. You don't know, you know whatever, how, what revision it is. Is it the first, third, 15th revision, whatever? I know that's a bit you know, sarcastic, but you really don't know how accurate these things are when you get them from government agencies, but really it's the best you've got, right? And so at, if we start to have some sort of you know, blockchain-related, uh, I guess, drive in things like government data, and it's consistent across countries, we can start to have government data that are comparable across jurisdictions. Right now, it's really not comparable. There are so many ways to get this data 
done uh, that it, it, although someone says it's a GDP number, a GDP number is not a GDP number. You know, these different numbers are not directly comparable across and the, the quality of these things are, are really sketchy. So, you know, we've done things like we've compared uh, macroeconomic data across more than 150 countries. We found that 46% of macroeconomic data that's reported globally is just not valid data. There's too much volatility. There's too much sketchiness in it. It just doesn't work. Um, and so, you know, when we see people using, whether it's in financial services or corporates, so using this data, <clears throat> pardon me, as a way to either calibrate their forecasts or build their forecasts or validate, you know, where markets are or set expectations or whatever, it's absolutely wrong. Um, you know, the macroeconomic data is very, very questionable. Um, and so, you know, again, we use this data, we validate it. Um, I, I can't say that it's a part of most of our calculations, uh, but it is a factor in what we're doing because we have to be able to answer people if they say, are you using these macroeconomic data in your calculations? Yes, we're testing it. Um, we're looking at how valid it is. We're, we're using it as one of the many variables we factor into our calculations. Um, but it's interesting that you mentioned, you know, blockchain with data credibility when there's an assumption that most of the data that's out there is credible when in fact it's not. And we need that validation to come into the sphere of things like government data where, um, say, accuracy is an expectation already. Yes, very true. No, that's an uh, excellent point that you made that. And uh, in addition, also, I mean, we see a lot of algorithms are based on uh, one size fits all model, you know, data. They just take one data and set and uh, they use that for giving the effective forecasting, you know, response uh, across nations. Now, that is also probably a big mistake because how do we, uh, you know, use the one size fit more, uh, I mean, fit all model? Because there is each nation has so many different variables and so many so much different data, underlying data distributions that uh, you know needs to be evaluated and considered. And that's the reason probably you know a lot of models they have uh, poor performance and they are not very accurate. So how what would you tell those you know people scientists who are building those models? to, you know, how to mitigate these issues because each nation comes with different data sets and the sure. nature of data is different and, you know, all variables are different. So how sure. do you mitigate such issues? Well, the one-size-fits-all model is, is the standard approach of the forecasting industry today, whether it's industry forecasts or uh, economic forecasts. I mean, that's just the way it's done today. Um, and uh, most of those uh, firms use actually very small models. Um, and they're separate models. So let's say you're doing a, you know, a gold or silver price forecast, or you're doing, let's say, Japan GDP or something like that. These are literally spreadsheet models that aren't interconnected to other uh, elements in the global economy. Um, it's terrible. It's a, you know, in probably 1994, this stuff was valid, but today there's just no excuse for doing that. Um, and so, you know, that approach is a massive risk for anybody using that data. Uh, it's a massive, massive risk for companies using that data. It's a massive risk for governments using that data. Um, and you know, the companies who are doing that stuff really have to look at their um, 
their approaches and they have to report their error rates and be more transparent about the way they're doing things. Yes, very true. Transparency is going to be the key because if not now, in the coming years, people are going to be able to see why the their intelligence is not very accurate because if the data is not very accurate, if all the variables are not considered and if it's just one size fit for all the nations, then that's where the you know challenges are going to come and that's where the risks are going to emerge. So do you see your model serving as an inspiration for other predictive intelligence efforts? Well, I would hope so. I, you know, I think one of the things that we do that some of these more traditional players need to really look at is we question all of the underlying data. We test and validate all of the underlying data. I think the way many models are built today, that underlying data isn't really questioned. So what I just said about economic data globally, you know, almost 50% of it just isn't valid. There aren't many firms out there that will look at that data and actually question, is it valid in its own right before they put it into a model? Right, so you have to look at many layers of that forecast and you have to validate uh, and really clarify uh, many, many layers of that model. And I think that as, as firms and users of forecasts start to look at having a much more data-driven approach to planning, um, you know, they're going to start questioning these things. So it really all starts with accountability. And, and I ask my, you know, my clients and prospects, um, you know, do you do your other forecasting firms give you, say, correlations, R squared, statistical output for their forecast? Do they give that to you? Do they give you back tests? Do they give you historic error rates? Because if they don't, you need to demand that they do. Okay, and what they come back to me with is they say, look, our existing firm that we've been using for 20 years refuses to give us their error rates. They refuse us, you refuse to give us the correlations in R squared and statistical output around their forecast. You know, they refuse to be accountable. And these users, because they've used these firms for decades, they don't really have any choice but to continue using them. At least that's the way they feel. Um, and so what we're trying to do is pressure those firms to be more accountable for their output. So we're going first, we're being transparent about what we do. Um, we're showing these to our clients and we're hoping that that will become an expectation throughout the industry. Because again, there is so much risk loaded into the status quo way of forecasting that many, many companies just, they do not understand how much risk is loaded in there. Uh, and the pressure, I believe, again, the pressure will come from their shareholders and it will come from their boards if it doesn't come first from the executive teams. Very true, very true. But the, at the same time, the board also needs to be educated and informed about all these you know, issues and uh, the changing nature of security risk or how to evaluate all this uh, different technology transformation and where to get the help and where to, what kind of tools to use that also is a big challenge because we don't see the board prepared for the uh, rapid transformation that is happening across nations. But uh, having said that, what would you like to tell our global viewers and listeners and especially to those young minds who are trying to make a difference by solving many complex problems facing their nations? So how should they move forward and where should they put more efforts? Really, I think it's it's 
asking why you're doing certain things. I mean, that's the, that's the core of why we're doing what we're doing is, you know, I had led global research organizations for, you know, for a long time. And I looked at what our output was. Uh, and I looked at why we were producing that output. And uh, there really wasn't a good answer. And I think, especially for uh, these young people coming into their careers, let's say in the first 10 years of their careers, I'm sure they're asking, why are we doing this? Or why does it happen that way or whatever? And they understand that the decision processes really aren't what they should be. So they're probably in the right to ask why that's happening. And even to go, let's say upstream into their decision-making process and ask about say the precursor data sources or precursor processes as to why those things are happening. Because unless those questions are asked, we're never gonna develop data-driven approaches, real data-driven approaches uh, to making decisions. And if you don't develop data-driven approaches to make decisions, again, you're never going to isolate the error in that decision-making process. And if you don't isolate the decision-making error in that process, you have risk built into that process from start to end, right? And so this is, you know, it's all about minimizing risk. It's all about raising the level of, of say, precision or certainty uh, and, uh, and really reducing error in the outcomes. So nothing will be perfect. You know, uh, nothing from, say, an AI or ML-driven approach is going to be perfect. Um, but unless that, um, uh, that tool is transparent enough to disclose the attributes around what it puts out, it's really not worth using, quite frankly. Yes. So, and I think that those young professionals, especially, um, have been educated to ask those questions. And I think they'll be the ones who aren't afraid to demand more data-driven uh, tools uh, for these decisions. Let's hope so. And your the advice and the suggestions that you give are excellent. And I hope that our young, especially our young uh, global viewers and listeners, listen to these excellent advice and they focus their energy in the right direction to solve the problems placing, facing their nation. So thank you so much, Tony, for participating in Risk Roundup today. We appreciate your thoughtful insight on explaining the importance of machine learning techniques for market forecasting. And our global viewers and listeners will benefit tremendously from the understanding you provided on the current state of forecasting. So I think even if a single individual or entity can understand the power of machine learning for predictive analytics to redefine and redesign forecasting based on the understanding they received from the discussion we had today. This Risk Roundup Dialogue has been of service and we thank you for that. Thanks, Hedry. Thanks very much. Wonderful. So uh, uh, thanks again, Tony. And while we are still at the beginning of machine learning journey, the ongoing research opens many new avenues for advanced predictive analytics that will bring forecasting power to entities across nations, its government, industries, organizations, and academia in the years to come. Risk Roundup, a global initiative launched by Risk Group, is a security risk reporting for risk emerging from existing and emerging technologies, technology convergence, and transformation happening across cyberspace, geospace, and space. We at Risk Group believe that risk management, security, and peace, they walk together hand in hand. Though security is related to management of threats and peace to the management of conflict, 
risk management is related to management of security vulnerabilities as well as management of conflict. And it is not possible to conceive any one of the three without the existence of the other two. All three concepts feed into each other. We believe that the security we build for ourselves is precarious and uncertain until it is secure for everyone across nations. Tradition becomes our security, so if we build a culture of managing risk effectively, it will lead us to security and security will lead us to peace. Let's manage the existing and emerging risk together. For more information on the risk roundups, to watch the risk roundup webcast or hear the risk roundup uh, podcast, please go to riskgroupllc.com and do not forget to subscribe and share. Until next time, I'm Jayashree, host of Risk Roundup, signing off. See you next time. Thank you.